5.52 the time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks, and for Doug McIntyre this Thursday morning. Donald Trump's hair in the news, uh, Bernie, well, Along we've been talking about, yeah, Bernie's hair, we've been talking about that too, even Hillary's hair. Why does she have so many hairdos? I mean, I've seen, you know, they she show this B-roll. on one, I yeah, think. Yeah, maybe Steve Kastenbaum can help us uh, with that. Hey, Steve, uh, welcome to uh, KABC. Good morning, I know you're all over the presidential uh, contest. How are you today? I'm doing well. Boy, man, things just really got heated up in a number of hours here uh, in the Northeast. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really uh, showing us how much this race matters here in this city. Uh, let, let's start with Donald Trump. You know, he came back to New York, his hometown, and then went out to Long Island on Bethpage, where he had a rally with more than 10,000 people, a few hundred protesters outside. Uh, and we saw a reinvigorated Donald Trump. He was back to being a brash, confident, energized self. And he uh, was talking about how happy he was to be back home and how these were his people. Uh, very different Donald Trump than what we've seen on the campaign trail over the last week and a half. So uh, he's uh, obviously going to capitalize on the fact that he's back here on his home turf. And he spent a good amount of time during his speech ripping into, quote, lion head and the crowd loved every minute of it. And Ted Cruz, conversely, had an event in the South Bronx that did not go so well. He met with a very controversial state senator, Reverend Ruben Diaz, who's known for making very offensive uh, anti-gay remarks, anti-President Obama remarks. Uh, he sat down with that uh, state senator and other pastors in the South Bronx at a Dominican restaurant, and a patron stood up and started yelling that uh, Ted Cruz was not welcomed in the South Bronx, that it's an immigrant community, and that uh, it was uh, an insult to the entire community for that bigot to be welcomed in the well, South Bronx. Well, they like they like Trump better there? Uh, they don't like either. I mean, okay. in, in, in the Bronx, there's uh, only one out of every ten people in the Bronx is a registered Republican, so it's not, uh, it's not really safe territory for any GOP candidate. Nonetheless, uh, Ted Cruz went there, and it, it's you know it's actually kind of interesting to see that even though Donald Trump is is really uh, killing him here in, in the polls, uh, that, that he's still looking for votes here in New York. Uh, he was also uh, quizzed about his New York values remark by a reporter. Uh, Cruz talked about uh, the liberal Democratic politics of people like Andrew Cuomo, Elliot Spitzer, Anthony Weiner. And then he started listing, listing all these disgraced Democratic politicians and said that Donald Trump's checkbook, if you follow it, he's donated to all of them. So he doubled down on the New York values uh, remark. Uh, today, Cruz is visiting with the Jewish group in Bright Beach, Brooklyn, uh, where they're going to be making some matzah, apparently. Wow. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're right, Steve Kastenbaum. This is a huge turnaround because Trump was just having a disastrous week. The whole thing about abortion, putting women behind bars if they have illegal abortions, and then they, he gets trounced in Wisconsin. So, yeah, big comeback time for Trump. As you say, he's on his home turf. Thank you, Steve, for checking in. 5.55 The Time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC. Stay with us. It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Six oh seven, the time. Talk Radio is seven ninety K ABC. Good Thursday morning to you, Royal Oaks. In for Doug today and tomorrow. Good morning, T Ray. 
Good morning, Counselor. So, um, my website, royaloaks.com, that's R-O-Y-A-L-O-A-K-E-S.com. If you were a fan, T-Ray, of Gary Shandling, you, you got to check it Gary out. I Gary Shandling. Why? What I do you have? I put up a podcast basically honoring him. I read Aww. some wonderful uh, memories, appreciations, obits of him. So, Gary Shandling. So, you're uh, like an Uber fan, huh? Oh, I, well, you know, the, the show. You, both first, shows. Both, both shows. shows. It's Gary Shandling's show in the 80s was groundbreaking, but then he really got it together in the 90s on on HBO, the Larry Sanders show. I mean, it, and it started the very year Carson went off the air. Right. Shandling probably you know, was in the running. Uh, to, he, he might have been able to to get that show if he wanted, but he wanted to do something different. And mm-hmm. when you look back on it, he made a contribution to TV history. It was just immense. And otherwise, he would have been a very good, but just, you know, another late night talk show. But he really made his mark. But he anyway. also exploded HBO's original programming and Showtime. Oh, absolutely. And you can tell the reaction of the HBO people when he passed away, only 66, when he died a couple of weeks ago. Uh, boy, they, they really reached out and paid homage to him. So anyway, yeah, uh, check it out, RoyalOaks.com, uh, if you uh, loved Gary Shandling. Well, Mr. Tanaka uh, did not have a good day yesterday. L.A. County Under Sheriff Paul Tanaka convicted of conspiracy and obstruction of justice charges. Uh, the jury took less than two hours to to deliberate. I, I, uh, I know you said you didn't. Less than three, over two days. Oh, okay. And I know you said you didn't watch this uh, O.J. Uh, miniseries that just concluded on FX, T-Ray, but mm-hmm. one of the things they... Uh, recounted was the fact that the OJ jury, after eight months of trial and literally thousands of exhibits and hundreds of witnesses, it was about two hours, basically. Between ordering a ham sandwich and picking a foreman and so on, they did very little deliberation. And the movie recounted the fact that when they started, when they first sat down, instead of deliberating, instead of talking, somebody said, what do you think, maybe take a straw poll? Uh, what do you think? A straw poll? I, um, somebody they said, well, should we? They didn't discuss it? No, they didn't discuss it. They, they argued a little because it was 10-2 not guilty, and they really leaned on the two, mm-hmm. but they didn't really discuss it. They didn't deliberate. I was on a jury once downtown, and it was a guy in his 20s, a drunk driving case, and there was just no defense whatsoever, Royal. Right. The, uh, the, the defense attorney tried to say, well, maybe he didn't swerve and hit the tree because he was drunk. There are a lot of rats downtown. And he might have swerved. I mean, that's how the defense wow. went. So we all went and sat in the jury room and just looked at each other like, okay, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And basically, it took 10 minutes, but we sat there for another 15 just to make it look good. Because yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? There are cases like that uh, where jurors deliberate a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when you're talking about a double murder and all of this complexity with the DNA and so on, you would have thought that they, to make it look good, they knew the whole world was watching. I heard that the one of the uh, most stunning parts of that, as far as Johnny Cochran was concerned, was um, the, the scene where he came up with, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right. Because he had another, <laughs> he had something, but he, I can't remember what it was, before he came up with that, he tried out like six or seven different phrases before he finally settled on that yeah, one. Which were definitely not good uh, phrases, you know. It's kind of like an ad man sitting down with 50 ideas exactly. and 40 of them pretty much suck. No, it was, a, it, it was a fascinating show and it was interesting just from a TV standpoint. You know, everybody's so used to binge watching everything. You want to see a house of cards, boom, yeah. it drops and you 
know, you spend the weekend. The FX wouldn't let you do that. If you wanted to see it, you had to watch every Tuesday night for basically 10 nights from February to April. Then you could go online and see a, an already aired issue, uh, episode. But I think it was a great PR move for them because they're really promoting the other big show. They've got the Americans. And so it wasn't a binge watch thing. It's a, it's a you know, you should come to FX and, and check us well, out. They also got really lucky because that knife just showed up out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden everyone's talking about the investigation again. Yeah, that's true. And people were suspicious. I know John Phillips was skeptical. He thinks the <laughs> FX people might have planted the knife. And then, of course, we got the bad news the other day. Doggone it. It has nothing it, to do. <laughs> wasn't really the OJ knife. It was yeah. a gardening knife. No DNA and so on. So anyway, that that jury in, in OJ was was hugely uh, short in terms of of their deliberation, but not not much uh, not much difference here for Tanaka. Just a few hours, so now he's facing up to 15 years in federal prison. Uh, he's going to be sentenced uh, on June 20. And of course, the president of the union that represents uh, line level deputies uh, came out and said, you know, this was failed leadership. Uh, it, it was absolutely. Absolutely, it was the problems at the very top. Uh, it was a culture of corruption that we're, we're helping to get rid of now. Yeah, I believe we're going to talk to him later on in the morning, uh, in the 9 o'clock hour. But the case itself... It was just, it was stunning when you found out what happened. The, the cell phone was found in, in with an inmate. Sheriff's deputies tied it to the FBI, which was secretly investigating brutality against inmates. And at that point, according to the prosecutor, at Tanaka's direction, they stopped the covert investigation by hiding the informant. Right. They hided, they hid the informant from federal prosecutors. They threatened the FBI agent with arrest. What, the FBI agent handler who was handling the inmate, it, it was insane what went on. Yeah, it, it's so amazing to think they could have gotten away with this. And the jury, and he made the call. Tanaka decided he would testify. He did several days ago. It didn't go well. And the jurors streamed out of the room afterwards, and they were happy to talk to reporters. They said they found his claims unconvincing. They thought he was evasive. They saw him get angry, and so they understood why people didn't like the guy. And, would you have advised against that? Well, yeah. I mean, hindsight side is real easy. Of course, it's very, very simple to say the right thing to do now that we know he was convicted would be not to testify. But yeah, I, I would have said no, because let's face it, uh, he had no ability to bond with this jury. He had no ability to hide his true colors. And as a result, you know, the jury kind of saw right through him. I mean, he, his attitude was, well, it was all done by Baca, uh, but the jury wasn't buying it. Where do they put Baca and Tanaka? Well, the thing is, Baca, two months ago, did a plea deal, and he said, I admit it. I lied to the federal investigators a couple of years ago. Uh, he's going to be sentenced as part of a plea deal to six years behind bars. But uh, Tanaka's looking at a lot more Up than that. Up to 15. That. Well, the prosecutor says that she's going to ask. She wouldn't say how many years he could get up to 15, but the U.S. attorney said she would push for a considerable amount of time in prison. So, yeah. But where do they put them so that they don't get killed? Well, they send them all around the country uh, to uh, sort of a club fed deal mm -hmm. uh, where it's kind of minimum security. They mm -hmm. have to get them away from California because there's right. they don't want any risk that uh, other inmates are going to be uh, have a grudge against these folks. So I, I'm sure that they'll take steps to to protect them. And they, they don't want to put them in you know, solitary confinement for years and years. So they got to be in a situation where, where uh, the bad guys uh, aren't around. But, you know, one of the things that people were saying is that the reason, not to excuse it, but that the reason that the deputies uh, developed this, this uh, pattern 
of, of violence against the inmates is that they were dealing in the sheriff's uh, jails with far worse, more violent people because of the realignment. Right. Felons are shoved out of the state prison system because we don't have room. They, they, they plant them in the sheriff's jails where they're not used to having it. Usually they're used to having these guys that are accused of misdemeanors and they're pre-sentencing type guys. And, and so it was a much badder crowd that they were dealing with. And obviously the sheriff's department made the, the very bad decision to decide, well, we want free reign to be violent and beat these guys up and show them who's boss. And then uh, the poor, further poor judgment to take on the FBI. It's just, just amazing that it rolled out like that. Hey, it's 6.15 here on Talk Radio 790 KBC. We're going to shift gears and uh, welcome to the program Paul Bedard. He's the Washington Examiner's Washington Secrets columnist, and uh, he's got some some fascinating uh, factoids about the tax burden in America. Paul, welcome to KBC. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? It's great to be here. Wow. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been reading about the stuff you've been uh, doing in terms of uh, reporting on uh, the, the effect of uh, taxes on Americans. And, I mean, talk about a headline. Uh, who knew Americans spend more on taxes than food, clothing, and housing combined? Uh, this is true? It's a mind blower, isn't it? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where we have to, you know, right, we got April 18th, we got to finish paying our taxes. There's a group in town that uh, sizes up when uh, Americans collectively have, have made enough money to pay all of their taxes for the year. And uh, that, that date is actually April 24th. But in the, in, in the kind of the uh, figures that they use, they, they find that we're paying about $5 billion in federal and state taxes. And uh, uh, we spend less than that, only $4 billion on housing, food, clothing. I mean, the American family, just, you know, just think about how many taxes, how much you pay in taxes uh, versus what you're spending in clothes and food and things like that. Um, you don't think about it until somebody throws it in your face and <laughs> it's an eye-opener. Boy, and so they call it Tax Freedom Day, so that yep. everybody crunches the numbers and they figure out that the day that you get finished paying off all of the taxes to, uh, presumably this is state and federal combined, uh, is April 24, and as of that date, you finally get to, to work for yourself. I mean, how do you feel when you see somebody like Bernie Sanders come along and his popularity just seems to be growing. People are kind of fine with the idea yep. that, he, that he's a socialist as opposed to a capitalist. I mean, if Bernie has his way, Tax Freedom Day is going to be more like Thanksgiving. I mean, isn't that a little <laughs> discouraging to people who are involved in these tax advocacy groups? Well, I suspect it is if you're paying your taxes. If you're not paying a lot of taxes or you're a student or somebody who just doesn't make a lot of money, you know, his proposals sound fantastic. You know, who doesn't want free college and, and, and other kinds of freebies out there? Uh, but, for you know, for blue-collar Americans and for, for, for white-collar, too, I think a lot of people are, are you know, may, maybe that's part of the anger that you see with Donald, you know, Donald Trump supporters is that a third of their life, a third of their year uh, working goes for taxes. And I think people have just, you know, kind of had enough. We're talking with Paul Bedard. He is the Washington Examiner's Washington Secrets columnist. His Twitter handle is at Secrets Bedard. That's be like boy E D A R D. So, Paul, I mean, apart from Bernie Sanders, we've had eight years of Obama, and we're looking maybe, I suppose, in you know, the smart money might be on eight more years of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. How how does a tax advocacy group get any traction? When, you know, it's not just some, you know, white-haired uh, Vermont senator 
this is the president of the United States who has put us on this track, and Hillary Clinton is promising, basically, to continue that. How do you get traction from a, a tax advocacy standpoint? Well, you know, you try to work around a day like, you know, when our, when our federal income taxes are due, and that's why uh, this report comes out about now. Not only is it uh, uh, the, the time when we've we finally paid enough for uh, the full year, but, you know, it kind of reminds you of, of that piece of paper that you're filing every year. Um, but you're right, it's kind of hard to do it because it's factored in, right? People don't think about taxes, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and they figure, you know, you can't fight City Hall. Uh, but, you know, I think if you, as, as you've had some candidates like Trump try to make a little bit more hay on how much people are spending. And, and also, I think once you finally will get the, uh, uh, the actual debate between the two nominees over who wants to spend more of your money uh, for whatever their program is, I think that's when it will, you know, people, the light will finally go on. You think the flat tax has any shot? I mean, I know Steve Forbes has been pushing that for a long time. A lot of Republican candidates have been really blasting the IRS. I mean, let's face it, the IRS scandals recently have put them in a very bad oh light. Gosh. There's this guy, I've forgotten his name, but the head of the IRS, whenever he shows up on TV, he just looks like the ultimate villain. Uh, and, and so I think there, there, is, there is some sense in, in, the, in the nation that the tax code has just gotten so ridiculous, so onerous, so, so enormous. It's just this, this giant monster. Uh, and a lot of people are saying, let's abolish the IRS. But on the other hand, it's such an entrenched part of the bureaucracy. Is it really realistic to try to push any kind of dramatic reform like that? Yeah, I don't think there's any, any real any move to abolish the IRS. I mean, it's a great political stand, and people cheer for it. But, I mean, you need somebody to collect the money and somebody to count the money. And so I think that they will always be around. And, and you know, if, 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 if your neighbor isn't paying his bill, you want him punished, right? So, you know, they'll stay around. The flat tax, it's, it's, it's somewhat sexy, but... I don't think there's really much of a move, and, and part of the problem is every time you raise uh, trying to change the tax code, or, or especially with that something fairly dramatic, there's too many easy ways to attack it, and so Congress just kind of shrugs and says, you know, maybe what we'll do is we'll trim back uh, uh, the, the, the top rate or the, the middle rate, and, you know, if people get back another couple hundred dollars a year, they're fairly satisfied with that, it seems. You know, this idea of trying to uh, really help Americans visualize a, a very dramatic I image about the effect of taxes is great. Because, you know, when you toss numbers around, you hear a, a trillion or a billion or a hundred billion. Yeah. People don't know from numbers. But for you to say, for the, for the tax advocacy groups, to, to zero in on the fact that when you stack up, on the one hand, how much we pay in taxes, and on the other hand, everything we pay on food, clothing, and housing all year long, and to realize we're paying more in taxes than all of those things, that's a really powerful message. Do you see any candidates on the Republican side that, that you think are, are better equipped than others to try to, to make that argument in a dramatic and vivid way, kind of as symbolized by this food, clothing, housing argument? Uh, maybe to a certain degree, sure. I mean, Trump makes the argument, although, you know, we don't really know what he means and what he's going to do because he hasn't spelled a lot of these things We're out. I'm not sure how he's going to make them uh, pay for the wall. Right, right. I mean, Ted Cruz talks the game, too. I think, you know, it's, maybe it's time to take a serious look at someone like John Kasich. You know, he was the budget chairman in the House. He uh, worked in the federal government on the budget. He gets how the game is played. He knows where the uh, skeletons are buried. And he would be able to figure out uh, maybe uh, what he can do with the code uh, to make it easier on Americans. I mean, you know, I, I feel your pain. California, 
your your tax uh, freedom day isn't until April 30th. You're almost last on the mm-hmm. list. You're paying so much. <laughs> We're working an extra week. You know, it's yeah. amazing though. When you talk about Kasich, the, the public opinion polls come out. He beats yeah. Hillary like 50 to 40. He he right. clobbers her. Cruz he beats Hillary by two or three points. Trump's down by ten points. So it's uh, it's really an amazing situation. Hey, Paul Bedard of the Washington Examiner, appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us on this rather uh, sobering uh, statistic. Six twenty-three, the time here on Talk Radio seven ninety KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas. How are things looking? Uh, I got a dial tone. If you'd like to make a call. Dial 800-222-5222, cause the KABC phone lines are open! As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made. For you and me. 6.40 the time. Talk Radio 790K ABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. You know, I never know if I'm listening to Larry David or Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I know, I, right? David is so good at this. So uh, we we got a, a real rumble in the Bronx going on here. Uh, we are delighted to be joined by Daniel Lipman. He's co-author at the Political Politico Playbook. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, you're quite welcome. So uh, what do you think about this Hillary-Bernie thing in New York? Is it possible Hillary's kind of walking into a trap there? I mean, agreeing to debate. Bernie just seems on a big roll. Was it six out of seven primaries in a row? Uh, What do you think is going to be happening in the next couple of weeks there in New York? Uh, So this is, you know, Hillary's adopted home state. She, uh, you know, moved there in 2000. Uh, in, you know, to Westchester to run for the U.S. Senate. Tried to drop and, her Arkansas and, accent. Yeah, and uh, every every place she moves, she has a new accent. <laughs> right. Notice that, huh? Yeah. Uh, and but but Bernie is like very strong, you know. And one indication you can see, which has helped, you know, power his campaign, is how much money he's raising. So last month he raised uh, over forty-four million dollars, and that's more than fifteen million dollars uh, to Hillary. And so. This has enabled him to, you know, spend heavily, and you know, it, it's helping him, you know, win states like Wisconsin and give him a real fighting shot in New York, which you know everyone expected Hillary to trounce him in, but now he, now she really has to fight hard to make sure that, uh, you know, Bernie doesn't win again. Uh, as he has recently. Well, you know, the problem is Bernie supporters have an unfair advantage since they don't pay any taxes. They have plenty of money to give to Bernie, you know? <laughs> All right, so maybe maybe I made that part up. But what do you see in terms of the polls, Daniel Lipman, in New York? My recollection was that Hillary kind of had a comfortable lead in New York, but is that changing? Yeah, there hasn't been, um, you know, a poll out like after the Wisconsin victory. And so they're a little unclear as to, you know, who's going to, you know, win. But, like, she had been up in New York. And, you know, she points, they, they point to the fact that, you know, the states that uh, Bernie has won are very, you know, white and working class, lots of those types of voters. While New York is diverse, lots of minorities. And those are the groups that traditionally support Hillary. And so this, if she can't win in New York, um, that raises real questions as to is this a zombie front runner where everyone thinks that she's going to win, but she actually hasn't won recently in, right. in, in many states. 
You think Hillary is giving uh, the Republicans a whole lot of ammunition uh, by kind of mud wrestling with with Bernie and trying to out progressive him over the last several months? I mean, ideally, from her standpoint, she wouldn't have had to run so far to the left to win in the primary season and instead just kind of remain above it all and centrist and and then glide into the into the general election where she she would have to be more centrist just as the republican is going to have to run to the center do you think that it's it's really been harmful to her to to have to have as an art as arduous a fight against bernie as she's had uh you know that's that's a definitely an interesting question but the thing is that uh a lot of people have you know, short-term memories. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in this 24-7 news cycle, what she said about, you know, touting her progressive values in the last couple of months, by the time September rolls around and the general election against either Cruz, Trump, or Paul Ryan, assuming that Hillary is a nominee, like, she can walk back some of those positions and really moderate uh, those you know, those very leftist, uh, you know, tones or points that she's making. And well, yeah, but I mean, through, I, I was going to say through the miracle of videotape, if the Republicans are worth their salt, they're they're logging away all sorts of wonderful nuggets and sound bites that they can hit her over the head with as in October and, and September uh, down down the line. Uh, you had a second point, though. Go ahead. And the uh, that's... Um, the Hillary campaign would respond and say that they have lots of sound bites of Trump and Ted Cruz saying oh, yeah. things that they will put in ads too. So, yeah, uh, they, both sides have lots of ammunition against each other. So let's flip over to the Republican side. What is this about Cruz? You know, drawing you know a couple of drunks and five stray cats and, and eight ministers <laughs> uh, to uh, and a, one a, protester. Well, yeah, was this just a bad job by the advance man? Because I mean, Trump is able to just really beat up on him and draw the contrast between the enormous, huge crowds that that he gets, and, and Cruz shows up uh, in the Bronx or Brooklyn, and uh, hardly anybody shows up. This you know sort of wacky, a super right-wing minister uh, that makes all these anti-gay statements is not exactly hitting the ground running for Ted Cruz in New York. It feels a bit like, uh, you know, amateur hour, you know, it's kind of a fish out of water, I would compare to him in New York. Um, you know, he, remember a couple months ago, uh, he famously in a debate, he, he slammed New York values, whatever that means. Uh, and so, you know, to go to New York, you know, he's very, he's pretty, you know, he's, he sold himself as a real, solid, hardcore conservative. And the, the Republicans and conservatives in New York, that does not, they are not the same as Texan conservatives that elected Ted Cruz and that you can find in real red states. And so he has to, you know, that, you know, uh, he has to really find a balance to kind of, like his message is basically, vote for me even though, you probably, many of you probably don't like me, and but I, if you want to stop Donald Trump, I'm your guy, and I'm the best alternative. There's no one else out there on the ballot. John Kasich is weak. Uh, he's only one one state, and so that's kind of it's you know swallowing a bitter pill for uh, the the moderate Republicans who aren't thrilled with Cruz, but they hate Trump. 
So we're talking to uh, Daniel Lipman, co-author at Political Playbook. His Twitter handle is at DLipman. Daniel, what do you make of all this talk about this, uh, you know, the lurking establishment in the Republican Party, uh, wringing their hands? They're saying, you know, Trump's going to be a disaster down ballot. You know, we're going to we're not only going to lose the White House, but we're going to lose the Senate and the House, too. Uh, on the other hand, Ted Cruz isn't much better. These are these sort of the Bush types that never really had much use for Ted Cruz. And they're going to uh, pull the strings and manipulate the rules in Cleveland at the summer convention and put in somebody, whether it's Paul Ryan or John Kasich or somebody like that. And if that happens, then, of course, it's the Civil War all over again. Trump's people will just stay home. Trump maybe will run as a third party. Bottom line is there's just no path forward to the for the Republicans to win. What's your handicap on all that? Uh, it's, you know, what's, what's interesting is that with Trump losing in Wisconsin, that's really given a boost to the elite and the, the Republican establishment who, you know, wants to stop Trump at all costs. And so their argument is that if Trump doesn't get the required number of the 1237 delegates by the time Cleveland the rolls around, then, you know, he's not entitled to the nomination. And so uh, they are going to, you know, really... And, and they'll, they'll probably argue that, you know, Trump would... Uh, it's not his party. It's the, you know, it's made up of all the party members and the delegates. And so if, uh, you know, they, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't own the party. And, you know, this is a guy who wasn't even a Republican for part of his life, uh, you know. And so he, that's that's their, their take. And I, how successful they will be, uh, it's kind of 50-50 right now. The, you know, Trump is one of his senior advisors uh, unaffiliated with the campaign, but who has long worked for Trump. Uh, he threatened that if in Cleveland they try to deny the nomination, uh, Trump supporters will go to hotel rooms of any delegates that switch sides and, you know, what, knock beat on their them doors up? And... Yeah, what, what does that mean exactly? Go to hotel rooms. Is this like Aaron Andrews? They're going to install cameras in the peepholes, or what's going on? Uh, I probably, when I'm staying in a hotel room, I usually don't want people knocking out my door and uh, yelling at me for <laughs> my political opinions. Yeah. So, well, and that kind of story just feeds into the, the thug image that, you know. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah, whenever Trump has a rally, you know, you, you're probably going to get beaten up if you uh, if you express any dissent. But, I mean, so so in other words, the, the, what you're picking up, Daniel Lipman, is that Trump is not going to go away quietly. Um, who knows whether he'd actually proceed with a third-party deal, which, of course, would be, he knows would be suicidal, but but it would just guarantee that Hillary Clinton or whoever the Democratic nominee uh, would be elected. But uh, it's in, in other words, there's just no clear way forward. Uh, I mean, with somebody like Paul Ryan, do you think that there would be some consensus? I mean, we haven't seen since the, the 1940s a second ballot for a Republican convention. Every single one since Eisenhower in 52 has been first ballot. Some of them have been very close, as in 52, 76, uh, Ronald Reagan almost beat the sitting president. Uh, uh, Gerald Ford, but you know we're likely. It looks like to uh, to see that happen here, and then I don't think anybody can predict whether you know Kasich could slip in, whether Cruz with with the, the number two number of of, uh, of delegates would go in, or somebody like Paul Ryan as a compromise. Yeah, our um, my colleagues at Politico, we reported a couple of days ago that you know top establishment Republicans they they view Paul Ryan as this. This white knight gallivanting, you know, in the shadows. So he's he's saying, you know, to save their party and 
and you know make America great again without without that slogan, but with a chance to be Hillary, which all Republicans want to do. And so, and they almost view it as when John Boehner stepped down a couple of months ago, Paul Ryan denied that he would. He said he wouldn't run for speaker. Right. And he's saying the same thing about being president. But all politicians, when they haven't they haven't announced or they don't want to be they don't want to attract the media attention or the you know they don't want to get attacked by Trump, then they're not going to say they're going to run for president. And so Paul Ryan is pursuing the strategy that you would expect of someone who would make the case that he's reluctantly taking the nomination. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to campaign for it, but he's just going to, you know, you know, show up in Cleveland. He is the chair of the convention. And so, um, but maybe he'll be the star of it too. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that when somebody says, Oh no, I, I won't do it. I'm not interested. It makes them much more attractive. It makes people really interested. If he's just running after everybody saying, Oh, I want to get in. Uh, I, I think that has the, the opposite effect. So you never know. Paul Ryan, as you say, he, he might be the white knight. All right. Daniel Lipman, co-author of political playbook. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on this story. You have a great day. Time is six fifty two here on talk radio, seven ninety K. ABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas. How's it going, Bill? It's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Seven oh seven. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety K ABC. Good Thursday morning to you, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Talking about all things presidential today, and we're delighted to be joined by our friend Sean Steele, California National Committeeman for the Republican National Committee. Sean, welcome to KBC. How are you? Top of the morning, Royal. Good to hear you. Well, thank you. Uh, boy, too bad. Uh, such a boring political season. Nothing to talk about, huh? <laughs> oh, brother. Have you ever you, have you ever seen anything like this, Sean? I mean, this is just well, it's 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 a fascinating uh, melodrama in, in a lot of respects. But for both parties, let's face it. I mean, you know, for a while the Republicans were having all the fun. They had this Democrats that had this old guy that's calling himself a socialist, and nobody could believe it. Now, now he's got <laughs> momentum. He's beating Hillary state after state, having giant rallies. He's, you know. The, the, the two funny guys are having the biggest rallies, Trump and the Sanders. It really is amazing. I want to talk and, and about... Sometimes the same people. Yeah, I want to talk about Trump because, he, well, you know, it just looks like he's in, in making a good turn turnaround after Wisconsin. But first, you mentioned Bernie. Let's listen to a little sound of, of Bernie going after Hillary. I mean, a few months ago, he wasn't going to talk about the big problem she had about her, her emails. He's just basically giving up uh, on a huge uh, argument against her. But now, let's he's got something else to talk about. Yeah, let, let's listen to his take on whether she's qualified right now. She has been saying lately that she thinks that I am quote-unquote not qualified to be president. Let me just say in response to Secretary Clinton, I don't believe that she is qualified if she is, through her super PAC, taking tens of millions of dollars in special interest funds. If you get $15 million from Wall Street through your super PAC, if you have voted for the disastrous war in Iraq, if you have supported virtually every disastrous trade agreement, which has cost us millions of decent paying jobs, if you supported the Panama Free Trade Agreement, 
So he's really blasting away. You think Bernie's getting some traction? And I, I wonder if she's walking into a trap with this debate there but how does, in New York. Well, how does any of that make her unqualified? I, I don't understand what he's saying. I think it's a rhetorical technique. All right. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Sean? Well, I, I again, I'm I'm watching this great uh, spectator sport. You know, it's almost <laughs> like uh, you know, ancient Rome. You know, and we're in the Colosseum, and <laughs> you know, watching the gladiators go after each other. Uh, no, every bit of this is is just is is delicious. It's a serious business. Uh, I think uh, Trump's had a, a a rude awakening in Wisconsin because it was a it was a, a, a devastating wipeout. Uh, I'm getting we're getting all kinds of reports that Trump is. Uh, uh, getting new staff, uh, he's getting a, a new approach. The question is: is he is how late is it, and is he going to listen to the new staff? Well, now he seems energized. He, you know, he's talking about being home. He's really blasting mm-hmm. away at what he calls Lion Ted. New York, of course, has a huge number of delegates, far more than Wisconsin. Do you think? Well, for, I guess there are two questions. First, what do you think the chances are that Trump will have the 1237 in his pocket when he goes to Cleveland? And secondly, if he doesn't have them, what the heck do you think is going to happen? I don't think he gets them. Uh, there's, uh, the way the part of the Republican Party has changed, we've taken that winner-take-all role, which would give one person uh, with just a few extra votes uh, way too much uh, power. That is, we want, we want to see it more proportional. So most of the state parties, including New York, have now got, you get the delegates based on congressional districts. So in New York, they have 19. There's 19 separate elections taking place. So it looks like Ted Cruz is going to pick up a bunch, and, and uh, Trump will pick up a bunch. Uh, Trump will likely get a you know the plurality, not majority. Remember, uh, Trump hasn't gotten majorities in too many states at all. And right now, there are more anti-Trump delegates as after Wisconsin than there are pro-Trump delegates. That's important. All right, so that's question one. He's probably not going to have the 1237. Now we're, we're getting into our hot tub time machine. We're in Cleveland <laughs> this summer. What in the world happens? Uh, option one, people say, well, Trump's way ahead. He almost did it, so let's give it to him. Option two, Trump, according to the national polls, he's going to get clobbered by Hillary. Ted will do a little better in case I could do the best, but we can't bring ourselves to do that. We go with Ted. He's number two. And then option three, Paul Ryan, John Kasich, in which case Trump's head explodes. Maybe he goes third party. Maybe his people don't even show up. How do you see that handicapping uh, if he doesn't have the 1237 going into the mistake by the lake? Royal, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because every time I made those kind of predictions, I've been dead wrong. So I'm happy <laughs> to make a prediction, but it's going to be the odds are 90 percent would be dead wrong. It's unfolding literally day by day. I give you an example: uh, the state Republican Party invited all the candidates to come to our state convention in Burlingame on April 30th. Uh, we've, you know, so Kasich, of course, immediately signed up. Uh, Carly Fiorina signed up a long time ago. Uh, then we got uh, uh, Ted Cruz. And uh, but but, you know, Trump, we never expected, you know, we invited him several times and then we get the call yesterday. Uh, Senator Brulte, uh, where I'm brand new to the campaign and when Mr. Trump discovered that he was invited to your convention in, in January and nobody told him about it, I've never seen him this angry. This is a brand new guy that probably doesn't even know Trump. <laughs> so uh, we would like to know if there's still an invitation available. And what do you think the answer is? Absolutely. Yes, we do have time for you and love to have you. So Trump's coming. Now, this is one of the few state parties he's visited anywhere at any time because he doesn't need those state parties, right? Mm -hmm. He just has his own party down the street, you know, fills up the Coliseum. 
So that's a definite turn of events. So for the first time in Republican Party history since Ronald Reagan, we're going to have all the contenders. That's going to be fun. So that's an objective change. That's a sign. Uh, and that means California. So I can't predict a whole lot of stuff, but California is going to be an exciting place to be for both parties. So no excuse not to vote. We're talking to Sean Steele, California National Committeeman for the Republican National Committee. So, Sean, let's say the Republicans feel like things aren't going that well uh, in terms of the presidency. And then they say to themselves, what are we going to do to save the folks down ballot around the country? Because let's face it, it's one thing to have another eight years of, of sort of an Obama era. But if we have another eight years with Hillary, plus, as in 2008, the Senate and the House flip over, I mean, in a few years, you might as well, you know, rename America Finlandia. You know, it's it's over. You know, so what's the... Maybe the Socialist Republic. Well, listen, I know... So what's the Republican Supreme... strategy for avoiding total disaster? Well, you're, you're a Supreme Court buff. You, you, you know, one of your multiple expertise is that you give uh, analysis on court decisions. And, of course, right now you've got a divided court. You've got five, four hardcore liberals that will never, 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 never break, and then four Republicans that sometimes do break. Right. And so right now it's, it's 50-50, and so the Scalia death is what really highlighted that. And I don't know if a single Republican activist is not aware of the Supreme Court, and that comes down to one person electing the president. So that's really the common denominator. Now, Trump, a few weeks ago, might have had the opportunity to wrap this thing up. But then silly, silly stuff started happening. Weird things were coming out of his mouth. Uh, dialogue was changing. Uh, the Twitter account was out of control. So now it's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's open. And I think party, the party, remember, a lot of folks are being elected as delegates, but these are party regulars that have been around for years and years, not establishment, mostly grassroots people. You get a, most states have rules where you get elected on a local level. And so you maybe pledge to a candidate, but come around the second round, the third round, you're free as a bird. Right. For example, uh, Sean here, uh, as a committee man, I'm, I'm obliged to go with the plurality candidate in California only for the first ballot. And after that, I'm just free as a bird. I'm going to be looking for a candidate that's likely to win. That's number one. Uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 to be the, and be the big unifier. Now, can uh, Trump uh, convince me of that between now and then? I don't know. Uh, Ted Cruz is making those moves. Kasich is certainly making those moves. Uh, does uh, Marco come out of the uh, come out of the shadows because he's only suspended his campaign? He's the one that does the best against Hillary. So it's an open game. Um, yeah, that, that's so, true. You know, when you say best, you, you say he does best even better than Kasich uh, in a head-to-head battle against Hillary. He always has. Hmm. And, wow. And, so maybe that, he maybe he would be the guy who would emerge because uh, it, a lot it, of it, a lot of people really like him. It could very well uh, do that. Now, beyond those four, the rumors that somebody flies into the convention and suddenly magically takes over, it's legally, uh, first of all, we have rules that prohibit that. They'd have to change the rules, and I don't see that happening. And then thirdly, uh, it, it's, uh, it just it doesn't, it doesn't taste or feel right. But keep in mind, Abraham Lincoln was not the favorite when he went into the famous convention in, in 1860. He was, uh, he was somebody that, eh, he was a compromised choice. You know, the big boys in the East could make up their minds. They had blocks uh, competing against each other, and finally Lincoln came through as a compromise. He could do well in the West. 
and of course, uh, you know, that, that changed American history. Well, it's going to be a fascinating summer, and right around the corner, it's going to be a, quite a show to watch in New York. Sean Steele of the uh, uh, California National Committeeman for the RNC, appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this issue. Well, keep, keep in mind, if you want to vote for Trump, you've got to register as a Republican. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> if you want to vote against Trump, you've got to register as a Republican. Either so way. If you want to be involved in the game, you've got to register to vote. <laughs> All right, Sean, appreciate your help. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take Bye. care. 718, the Time Talk Radio, 790 KABC. So the big story yesterday in Los Angeles is our uh, former under-sheriff Paul Tanaka convicted of conspiracy and obstruction of justice charges, looking up to 50, looking at up to 15 years in federal prison. He's going to be sentenced on June 20. Let's uh, check in with uh, some of the folks who were responsible for putting him away. This is Eileen Decker. Corruption within law enforcement will simply not be tolerated, particularly when it comes from the very top of those organizations. So you got uh, Sheriff Lee Baca in February uh, going right. ahead with a plea deal. Uh, he's looking at six months in uh, prison. Uh, and now uh, we've got Tanaka. And, uh, of course, uh, the defense had their day. They had their opportunity to, to try to blame He didn't do Lee anything. Baca. It was Lee Baca's fault. Yeah, that was essentially it. Let's listen to the defense attorney, Jerome Haig. It was him who ordered the FBI out of the county jail. We think that he is, if there is a guilty party, the most guilty party. All right, so that didn't work. Uh, the, the jury, uh, I mean, T-Ray, this jury uh, zipped through their job. I, yeah. I mean, the trial wasn't that long, but they took what, a few um, hours? Three hours over two days. Yeah, okay. So that's not a whole lot of deliberation, but the jurors were eager to talk to the press. Even the alternate jurors came out and talked, and they I said, you know. I wanted to vote against him, yeah, too. Yeah, I wanted to vote against him, too. <laughs> I, they didn't like Tanaka. They thought he was angry. They thought he was evasive. They thought his claims were, were unconvincing. He tried to say he was out of the loop. He said that Baca was a super angry guy who worked directly with subordinates who normally would have reported to the undersheriff. But, you know, one of the jurors said, you know what, the undersheriff ran the department. The sheriff was the face. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it just didn't work. Uh, you know, the, the big contradiction well, they pointed out was, you know, he's a very controlling, detail-oriented guy, according to the evidence, and yet when he testified, he tried to come off like as the remember, opposite. He couldn't remember. He couldn't remember. And he said that he took, you know, his orders all came from Baca, but the the other bad time for him was when they put up the phone logs from the time that they were talking about this case in 2011. The the phone logs that that related to the case showed 70 calls between Tanaka and all the other guys who've already been convicted and only one call between Tanaka and Baca. Yeah, so the evidence was pretty strong and of course the reactions coming in, uh, George Hofstetter is president of the Association for Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs uh, issued a statement saying the era of corruption which characterized the upper management in L.A. County Sheriff's Department has ended with the conviction of former undersheriff Paul Tanaka. The department can now move forward that the truth about the failed leadership of disgraced former Sheriff Lee Baca and undersheriff Paul Tanaka has been revealed through the judicial process. Others, though, are a little more cynical about it. They're saying, you know what, the guys who really carried out the plan, although about 10 of them have been convicted, some people are cynical and say, you know, there's there's still uh, a lot of uh, trouble in the, in the sheriff's department, and it, it's not it's not like it's, it's, not it's completely fixed. Yeah, it hasn't been completely fixed. But, I mean, this does send a, a pretty high-profile message uh, in, in terms of, of the, the leadership. One of the jurors said that when Tanaka uh, said, to the de- the deputies, you've got to work in the gray. That was really disturbing because essentially that was Tanaka 
you know, giving them the green light to break the law. And when you look at the evidence that this jury saw, that the sheriff's department tried to intimidate an FBI agent, that the sheriff's department moved an inmate around within the uh, the system, changing his name because they got wind of the fact that he was working with the FBI. He, right. was, he was a mole for the federal government. I mean, you just have to ask yourself, how stupid must Tanaka have been to think that he was going to be able to get away with this kind of a cover-up, with a lot of people involved, I mean, obstruction of justice? It's, it's, it's just amazing. But, uh, you know, he, he's going to be looking at... Um, impeachment of, as mayor of Gardena? Yeah, impeachment as mayor of Gardena. That probably isn't too high on his list uh, of things to worry about right now. I think the uh, the 15 years uh, behind bars that he's likely to get uh, at a federal prison somewhere in the United States, and I'm sure that there's going to be an effort to uh, to move him around the country and make sure also Sheriff Libaka, the six months that he's likely to spend, uh, are not going to be in Southern California where they might... Uh, bump into some uh, inmate that they help put behind bars in, <laughs> exactly. the, in the chow line. Uh, so so I'm sure they're, they're going to be steps. Or one of the other deputies that got convicted. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. You could you could see a lot of unfriendly faces there. Well, maybe he'll do well in jail because they'll see his gang tattoo. Mm. That's possible. Uh, you, you never know. Uh, but this is, uh, according to the, the head of the sheriff's uh, union, uh, maybe we're, we're turning a page here and, and maybe it's, uh, it's going to be a new, a new day and, and get rid of the corruption. And we'll be talking to George Hofstetter coming up uh, in the 9 o'clock hour here on KBC. Absolutely. We're going to look forward to that conversation. 7.23 the time right now. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas. How are things looking, Bill? Who's going to drive you home? Talk Radio 790 KBC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. You know, T-Ray, that expression, nothing good ever happens after midnight? <laughs> well, they proved it in New York. Uber driver gets the call, right? Okay. A guy named Juan Carlos wants to go from Philly into uh, New York. And so it picks him up. And the driver's driving along. But, oh, he's so sleepy. He turns to the customer, Juan Carlos. Would you mind driving? I know you're the customer. Would you mind? <laughs> oh, sure. Juan gets behind the wheel. So the driver drops off. He wakes up about 10 minutes later, 86 miles an hour. Sirens. The cops are chasing this guy who has cranked it up to 86 and refuses to stop. And I think the Uber driver probably will lose his job. I think Juan Carlos might go to jail. So again, nothing good after midnight. (laughs) Stay tuned on KBC. It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Eight oh seven, the time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre today and tomorrow. Hope you're having a fantastic day. So T Ray, big day in the news. We got the under sheriff of uh, L A County convicted yesterday. Conspiracy, obstruction of justice. He's going to be going away maybe for 15 years. A really quick action by that jury. Uh, uh, less uh, than three hours over two days. Yeah. I think they debated an hour and a half, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, on uh, Tuesday. And then uh, the same amount or a little less And they just didn't like the guy. I mean, they they came out talking. They said he was evasive. He was angry. They just didn't buy his claims. So 
He's going to be going away for a long time. A little uh, later this hour, we're going to be joined by Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition, talking about the American Idol finale after all these years. I know. We watched the lead up to it last night. My husband's a huge fan. Now, uh, I, I take it uh, when you say your husband's a huge fan, you haven't exactly yeah, been uh, dedicated to the show? Off. Sometimes I come and watch and sometimes I don't. It's been a real uh, a slice of Americana, though. I mean, it's really had a, a, an impact on the culture. Well, I'm, I'm watching the, the, watching the, um, the, the, the back view of it last night when they went all the way back to the beginning it was really funny because they were working on such a shoestring and the first season they just had you know the very few people and very few people with any talent whatsoever well there was and kelly clarkson Kelly Clark, well, then right. she won but then the thing was it, it 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 just blew up so huge that the next year they had these lines of people down the street and they had no idea to where to put them they had to go rent you know venues in order to hold these auditions yeah. it was amazing how quickly it, it happened i'm really excited to watch the finale tonight because you know I've been boycotting American Idol for almost 15 years because I didn't like that show when they got rid of Brian Dunkelman and they're bringing him back tonight. Oh, really? Okay, the return of Brian. So it's going to be an exciting finale. We're going to be talking with Jim Murray about that, and of course we've been talking about the uh, the battle in in the Bronx. Uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are going after it uh, hot and heavy. It's really getting ugly with uh, Bernie saying Hillary's unqualified, and uh, of course the the continued drumbeat of Donald Trump talking about about lying. And Ted, uh, and also, of course, um, the O.J. Simpson movie wrapped up uh, just two uh, nights ago. And that one you were addicted to. Yeah, I really yeah. was. I, I and I was surprised at so many people. I was into it just because I was so focused on the trial in the '90s. But a lot of people, either because they were intrigued back then, you'll recall there was a high level of obsession. But I think there were some new folks who were younger people who didn't really live through it, right. uh, who were amazed by it. And I, I think it's going to be interesting as people talk about it. And there's going to be more talk about. OJ because they're doing more projects, uh, more network programs and so on. But it'll be interesting to see if that show has an impact on opinions because mm. both sides put their best foot forward. I mean, Marsha Clark repeatedly throughout this this you know, 10 Tuesday series, she's talking about this this amazing amount mountain of, of blood evidence against OJ Simpson. Well, right, Royal, because and I just in the time since we talked about this the first time today, I went back and, and, and looked at stuff again and there was blood from all three of them on those gloves, right? Absolutely. Blood uh, from all, both of the victims. And O.J. Simpson. Mixed in with O.J. Simpson in the Bronco, in the glove, in his socks. But there were questions. I mean, the defense had arguments. For whatever reason, uh, there was a vial of blood that was given by O.J. Simpson that was supposed to have eight milliliters of blood and it only had six they could account for. And so the jury was left to scratch their head. What happened to the other two milliliters? And And Johnny Cochran was free to say, essentially, they did spill it. That the detective Van Adder, instead of following the normal chain of command rules, you take the blood and you, you put it in an envelope and you take it back to Parker Center. He carried it around in his pocket or the back of his car, including on a visit to the crime scene when oh, he went dear. to the house, when he went to the well, to the, the well, condo. Did they, did they then insinuate that he spilled some of the blood yeah. at, at North Rockingham? Absolutely. Yeah, but two milliliters. How yeah. much? It's, that's it d- doesn't make sense. Plus all of the other evidence, you know, OJ's cuts and so on. I mean, there's no doubt that the guy did. It, but the jury that was inclined to favor, I mean, bottom line is this jury was looking at two people. They're looking at Mark Furman, a genocidal racist who, who used the N-word freely and said all black people should be killed. And then there's O.J. on the other side of the courtroom. And the jury looked at these two guys. Who do they want with a smile on their face at the end of the trial? That was the, that was a straightforward question and, in their mind. And back to the question of racism that you brought up, one of the detectives, either Lang or Van Natter, actually lived in Simi Valley 
where the cops were acquitted. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and that was and that, didn't that was help. used in the trial as well. It, you know, it's it's funny. I, I mean, I bumped into OJ during the trial because I, I in the courtroom, went, in the courtroom yeah. call, called in. Ito said, "I want the lawyers for the TV stations to justify the cameras." People all over the world are, are sending me thousands of letters saying I ought to pull the plug. So, you know, I'd go in there, and, and whenever I was talking, Simpson was just bored to tears. You know, oh, he's really? yawning. Oh, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, and then I bumped into him in during the Las Vegas uh, robbery trial are in you 2008. S- oh, the trial. I, it, the, the trial, exactly. So the, the trial in Vegas is going on in 2008. He's accused of robbery because he and his pals with guns went to the hotel room to steal his stuff back. So I'm there. Um, a client of mine is there for a conference, and she's a, a, a young, uh, attractive, a blonde lady oh, no. that re- resembles Nicole a little bit. So she, she'd like to watch part of the trial. So I get her a pass. She goes watch the trial. And then after about 4 o'clock, the afternoon session's over, I meet her at the courthouse to meet with her and say, hey, how'd you like seeing the trial? And she says, OJ was kind of looking me up and down. Oh, no, Because she was sitting right with his friends. So he would turn around, look at me, look at her. He didn't know her. So I'm talking to her. What do you think happens? He comes out. OJ comes out, looking real sharp in his suit. He sees her. 30 yards away. He makes a beeline for her, totally ignores me, sticks out his hand, introduces himself. I'm O.J. Simpson. Starts to make small... T- He's hitting on my client, oh my okay? And she looks a lot like Nicole. Well, she doesn't know what to say. You know, Did you step in? No, I no, I, I didn't know what to what say else? either. What am I going to do? You know, start, start hitting him over the head? And so... He might have a knife! She was really mad at herself because later on she's telling me, I'm kicking myself. Why didn't I give him a piece of my mind? But, but she yeah, didn't. I know. But uh, she's still out of prison and he's in prison, so well, everything, everything worked out fine. <laughs> you know. It's 813 on Talk Radio 790 KABC. We're going to shift gears and uh, we are now joined by our friend Jim Array. He is chief correspondent for Inside Edition. Jim, how are you today? I'm doing great. T Ray, how, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Hey, Royal, I was listening to that story and I was flashing back to the civil trial. Uh, you know, I anchored all of the criminal trial for CNN, and then I sat in the courtroom for the civil trial, which was not televised, and I sat about, I don't know, five feet away from O.J. Simpson. And one day, before trial, you know, he'd like to make small talk before the trial began. Wow. And, 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 uh, and he, he nods, like, hey, look behind you. Check her out. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? And I'm thinking, Are you kidding no, me? No, I'm not kidding you. Who would make this up? I hadn't even thought about this for years, and I'm listening to Royal Story and going, Oh my gosh! I know that happened. I was there. Isn't and, that amazing? And, and, and he was looking at at a uh, reporter who had just walked in, a New York reporter, and he says, "Hey, check her out." And I go, ah, "Yeah, I didn't even know what to say." Wow, that is so weird. Well, Jim Moran, I know we're going to be talking he about the. Doesn't have any filter, does he, Royal? No, <laughs> no. Uh, we're going to be talking about the American Idol finale. But before we get to that, Jim, I mean, as you say, you were all over it. I mean, you covered it completely. You were, you know, sitting in for Larry King on CNN and hosting shows on CNN. Did you? Get it kind of a you know post-traumatic flashback thing uh, as, as this OJ movie was unfolding. I assume you caught at least part of it. I did. I actually had to watch most of it. I wasn't initially interested in watching any of it because I felt like I'd lived it and I didn't want to see it again. Huh. And and you, you know it's funny. About five six years ago, my manager John Ferreter says to me, "You got to write a book about OJ from a different perspective." And I said to him. Nobody cares about O.J. Simpson. And, and you know what? I'm an idiot. That's why he's a manager, and I'm not. There's still time. There's still time, and, and Jim. I cannot believe how people were watching this. 
we all knew what happened, but we didn't know what happened behind the scenes. Exactly. Well, it, it was amazing. And, and they were watching you, Jim. We're talking with Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent for Inside Edition. Also, he's the author of uh, Last Day of My Life, available on Amazon.com. So I have to tell a, a very sad story about you, Jim, uh, and your fame uh, during the OJ era. And I wasn't famous, but, you know, I was commenting and, and appearing for the TV stations well, to get cameras. Famous. Yeah, okay. I, I was a quattro famous. Jim, Jim was double. So here, here's the deal. So this guy comes up to my wife uh, during this era, and he says, oh, "He says I had no. I'm so excited. I had no idea who you were married to." And Lauren says, oh, oh, no, yeah. And he says, no, really, it's just so wonderful. I'm such a big fan. And she says, oh, thank you. He says, I had no idea you're Mrs. Jim Murray. <laughs> I told your wife that... that, that and, and well, wait, no, wait, Jim. We no, there's, there's, to there, put a lid on that. There's a, there's a punchline here. So, so she, he says, you're Mrs. Jim Murray. And, and so Lauren says, no, I'm, not, I'm married to Royal Oaks. And he says, who? <laughs> now, Jim, I was okay with the whole story until the who part, Okay. <laughs> When the who part hit, <laughs> that's, that off. was a little close to the bone for me. I'm upset that my cover was blown with your wife because uh, one of your kids is mine. Yeah, <laughs> you, you see, you, it, t- it says a lot about me, Jim, but I'm more upset about the who part of the story than the fact that, you know, little Wilbur looks a whole lot like Jim. It's like the, it's like Schwarzenegger's kid with the lederhosen. That's how we knew, you know. He likes to yodel in the Alps. Anyway, Jim, I have forgiven you years oh ago. I forgave you, you for said it was a sad story. I don't think that was a sad story. I think he's still holding a grudge, Jim. It all depends on your perspective now, isn't that right, Jim? Oh my gosh. But anyway, I, I had some deja vu moments with all the OJ coverage. And now, you know, Discover Channel or somebody's coming out with a an OJ movie that's focused on all the reasons why maybe he didn't do it, somebody else did it. That private well, investigator story. Out. One is one is a Martin Sheen produced movie and the other is an ESPN documentary multi part. Yeah, the Martin Sheen documentary is based upon William Deere, who's a private eye, who I interviewed a few yeah. years ago and he says that he found uh, the actual knife in uh, Simpson's son's storage locker that had been abandoned, and he believes that, that he knows who the real killer is. And, you know, uh-huh. look, this is going to go on forever. I heard a story, Jim, and tell me if you heard this, that Johnny Cochran actually knew what the verdict was going to be. And the way he knew it is because you may remember they made their decision after like an hour or two of deliberations right. and it was a sealed verdict and right. Ito didn't want to announce it because the darkness was coming and he didn't want any kind of violence on the streets oh. after that so he said come back at 10 a.m if you're interested uh, you know we're going <laughs> to open up this envelope and everybody was pretty interested so uh that night everybody knew that it was going to be announced but they didn't know what it was so a, a, a guy is having dinner with johnny cochran and he's how do you think uh, it worked out and johnny says we won and the guy says, what do you mean, you why? We've all had trials where we know we're going to win and we lost. We know we're going to lose and we win. How do you know? And Johnny says, as the jurors were filing out of the room, nine of them gave me a thumbs up. Seriously? So apparently Johnny Cock, now Johnny has passed, so we can't confirm this with him. But apparently he knew darn well what the outcome was. Now that wasn't in the movie, right? but that's uh, what I've heard. Have you heard any kind of I, I, rumor I, I, like that, Jim? I suspect that, that Johnny Cochran would not have been the only person to have seen that. And, and I'd like to think, I, I believe that It would one, be hard to keep that a secret, wouldn't it? To keep the thumbs it? up and nobody <laughs> saw but him. I, I'm sure that, the, 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 that some of the jurors gave some nonverbal cues at one point or another during the trial. I don't know that that happened. And, you know, I, I, I think, looking at, even at looking at O.J. Simpson, don't you think he looked surprised? 
Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I think it was probably just so emotional. And also, you, you know, Kardashians. Jim, Jim Moran. That's where I was going, T-Ray. Jim, you remember that amazing look on Kardashian's face? Yeah. Like, oh, my God. It, there was no relief. There was no exhilaration. There He's was like, no... It was be all. kidding me. Are you kidding? What have I been part of? What have I contributed to? Schwimmer, I thought, did a, a, an excellent job. Did the- as did Courtney Vance and Sarah Paulson, you know, Marsha and Johnny Kai. John Travolta, I, I like John Travolta. I thought he kind of played uh, Shapiro sort of cartoonish. Uh, uh, Jim, I don't know what your take on that was. I, I don't know that Robert Shapiro would have loved that portrayal. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I like, I like Bob Shapiro. Paul Pot really came out better. I, I, look, I thought that the movie was, was really pretty, I, pretty great really well done and and i agree with you kardashian's expression i think he came to the realization that this man that he loved truly and believed in was actually guilty and just got away with murder. well and it was uncle to sense. his kids right i'm sorry the the didn't the, the kardashian kids called him uncle oj yes. right yes yeah we are talking with jim murray chief correspondent for inside edition and we were gonna talk about and now we are american <laughs> idol uh, after what 11 years 15 15 years uh-huh. uh, it does well four uh, years uh, that you weren't around when i was dating <laughs> exactly right <laughs> so now you're covering the finale and we were just chatting before you came on about how you know kelly clarkson got it started off in a powerful way i mean i i've actually gone on youtube and seen uh the the clips of all of her four or five steps. You have all steps. of her albums. Come on. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Give me a break. Now, so this has been a real slice of Americana, hasn't it? Oh, it's been, you know, that first season where it was Justin Guarini and Kelly Clarkson, and look, it was innocent. Nobody knew what to expect, and I think it surprised the heck out of everybody and really captivated the nation and and you know this this innocence about having a young woman like Kelly who had never been discovered didn't have a contract off a cattle and, ranch and, and now she's huge and, and the idea that there's this undiscovered talent out there and that that it can be cultivated and people would fall in love with these new people and then we fell in love with the the the, the judges and we love to hate Simon and you know and the idea that we could vote that our vote counted and then the second season it was it was Clay Aiken was was the huge huge star even though he came in second right to Ruben Stuttered right and right. you know and that solidified the show I think because you realized it wasn't a one off and then it kept growing and growing and then you had some seasons where where people didn't even get into the competition and they became well known you remember this guy William Hung who sang She Bang uh, yes. in, in the audition and he became kind of a cultural phenomenon we we got so many so many interesting moments out of that show. It's fascinating to me, Jim, that the concept wasn't exactly original. I mean, the the amateur hour notion years ago, you know, Ted Ted Mack Mack and Major Bose and so on. Uh, And yet, they took it and they just made it so fascinating that people and and when you look at the list of names, Carrie Underwood, Jennifer Hudson, uh, Adam Lambert, uh, Kelly Pickler, just a huge number of stars have emerged. I had forgotten, Royal, that she didn't win Jennifer Hudson. Exactly. She was seventh. Yes. And she won an Oscar. Yes, exactly. Now, w- was the problem with the show that uh, it, the ratings were dipping? It just kind of felt stale nor- well, you know, toward the end? Or what do you think happened? Fifteen years is a long time for any show yep. on television. And, and I, yes, the ratings did, did start to fall off. I mean, at, at its height, the show had a 30 million audience, right? 30 million people would watch. That's incredible. And, and it's very difficult to sustain that, especially today with social media and, and the, the audience is splintered. But, but interestingly enough, this last season, 
the farewell season. The Wednesday night show is up year to year. Thursday night's down, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the show came back in a few years. I really wouldn't. All right, Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent for Inside Edition. Thank you so much for sharing part of your Thursday with us, and, uh, and I officially forgive you for that whole uh, thing, thing about Royal my wife. Say hello to your wife, <laughs> and T. Ray, uh, try to keep him calm today. <laughs> Uh, give have plenty of Kleenex and uh, um, poor Royal. Yeah, Royal, you're the best. <laughs> I, I, I love the sympathy. Thanks, Jim. Talk to you soon. Eight twenty four. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety. ABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre and Bill Thomas in for himself. How are things looking, Bill? Eight thirty nine. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety. KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So we're going to be talking about the uh, O.J. Simpson case. Why did uh, Randy play that song? I, I don't understand why. I don't know. Why, why would he it. pick he that song? It. Why would I pick the O.J. the O.J. story? I, I'm, I'm just not following it. Hey, you can get more news on your commute home. Hear the NBC4 6 o'clock news with Chuck Henry and Carolyn Johnson live on 790 KABC Radio, followed by Peter Tilden's Top 6 at 6-ish at 6.30. That's the NBC4 News at 6 live and the Top 6 at 6-ish right after Jillian and John on your drive home on 790 KABC. So the OJ story back in the news 20 years after the not guilty verdict in October 1995, the FX series, I think 10 straight Tuesdays, they captivated the attention of a lot of folks. Including uh, you. Yeah, no, I was th- I was right there. And uh, we're going to get an expert professional take on it from Deborah Birnbaum. She's executive television editor for Variety. Deborah, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So, Deborah, um, I don't know what your take on this. I mean, it seems like it was a hit, the the, the big movie, the series, and it spawned uh, other projects. Maybe they were in the works. Um, do you think it was hard to get this made? I mean, it is kind of a 20-year-old story, and yet it, it just seems to have taken off. It absolutely took off, and it was absolutely a hit, and I'm sure we're going to see other series like it simply because it was such a success. But, you know, I can't, you know, I absolutely loved every minute of it. I think it was amazing how it was able to take a 20-year-old story and make it relevant again. Well, of course, it, it was a huge story. I mean, you know, they called it the trial of the century. I mean, for all of us who kind of lived through it, uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything since in terms of the level of obsession and, and interest and so on. Is it your sense, Deborah, that, that it was really big with folks who did live through it? But as to millennials, you know, folks who might have been born in the mid-90s, around 2000. Something their folks are obsessed with. Yeah, but, but not some, or, or do you think it reached out to, to a younger audience as well? Definitely. I think it spoke to both audiences. For those of us who were alive, remember the trial. I think it was able to, you know, we were able to relive some things and remind, you know, reminded us of things that we had forgotten that had happened. But I think for millennials, it took stars that we recognize and remember. And I love that I just looked myself and called myself a millennial. But I think <laughs> by passing people like John Travolta and Sarah Paulson and people that are currently in the zeitgeist, it made it relevant and thought, wait, this is something that I want to tune into. And it was the show that everyone was talking about right now. Yeah. And, you know, you you mentioned uh, Sarah Paulson, who did such a marvelous job as Marsha Clark, and, and then her, her counterpart, uh, the Johnny Cochran character played by Courtney Vance Jr. I mean, they both did such a marvelous job. And, and the movie really sort of morphed into the personal conflict between the two of them. And, and obviously, all the other moving parts were included, but I thought that was really a, a gripping element because you, 
you really wanted to tune in each week to see you know how they were going to move that ball down the field in terms of of the clash between you know Marsha and Johnny, good and evil, however you want to look at it, uh, and uh, it, it just really worked. Absolutely, I remember when we were talking about it when we were covering this story when the castings first started to be announced. You thought, how is this going to work with so many stars on a cast? This could have been something that went so wrong with so many egos in one place. But the casting was so genius. All of these people embodied their roles. The performances really stood out. You mentioned Courtney B. Vance and Sarah Paulson. But I also want to you know, call out um, Sterling Brown, who did such a fantastic job as Chris Darden. He's someone that we didn't really know going into this. And he really held his own against all of these famous faces. So two of one, everyone delivered on their performances. And I think to your point about bringing in the backstories, letting us see what Marsha Clark went through was just absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely. We're talking with Deborah Birnbaum. She is executive TV editor for Variety. And it's funny, you mentioned faces. It's pretty weird the way they were able to line up so many actors who looked so much like the people they were playing. Like, uh, you know, Fred Goldman. I mean, this guy was a doppelganger. Even Sarah Paulson. I mean, with a little makeup, you know, a, a little Close. beauty mark there. She looked yeah. a whole lot like Marsha Clark. I mean, Effley Bailey, the character. I mean, Nathan Lane. They, they maybe had to do a little work on him, but he looked a lot like Effley Bailey. It, it was How just, about some of... How about Selma Blair as Chris Jenner? I mean, that was a fantastic piece of casting. Oh, you're and right. Oh, Connie yeah. Britton, and Connie Britton did a great job as Faye Resnick. So, you know, some people went, you know, for the doppelganger. Some people, I know there were some people who felt like Cuba Gooding didn't look enough like O.J. Simpson. But, you know, for me, I think all of the casting was spot on and everyone absolutely delivered in their roles. Well, let's talk for a moment about John Travolta. We just had Jim Murray from Inside Edition on, and, and Jim knows uh, Robert Shapiro a little bit, and he, he didn't really think it was very fair, the portrayal. I mean, I thought Travolta played Shapiro as you know evil and arrogant, so over the top. It was kind of cartoonish. What was your thought on that? I know critics were really split on it. There were some people that absolutely loved it and some people that felt that it was over the top. I think it struck the perfect chord. I think you needed something to kind of cut through the intensity of it. I think he absolutely delivered a great performance. Um, and I think he, he hit a home run in the role. I, it really worked for me. Well, it's a uh, it's back. The story uh, seems to have legs because, as you say, there are some other projects that are going to come forward, and so uh, we'll follow it up. And, and of course, some people were skeptical. Uh, John Phillips here on KBC thought maybe the uh, the FX people planted the knife at the construction <laughs> site that was found two or three weeks ago. That was pretty convenient. Now we know, of course, there was no DNA on it, but uh, it that didn't hurt the ratings. I'm sure a few more people tuned in because of that. Definitely. I mean, we, we, we kept joking the same thing. But look, I think they were very good at keeping the show at the top of the zeitgeist. And now NBC just announced that they're going to do a true crime series off the Law & Order that's going to focus on the Mendez brothers case. So obviously there's a tremendous amount of interest in true crime. And look what happened with making a murderer. So obviously this is something that audiences are very much interested in right now. All right, Deborah Birnbaum, executive TV editor for Variety, and your handle is at Deborah D E B R A Birnbaum B I R N B A U M. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. Eight forty-five, the time. Talk Radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre, Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the freeways? Nine twenty-nine, the time. Talk Radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. You know, uh, T Ray, the story that, that Randy has very intelligently chosen. It's it's not an accident because there's a real survey here, a real study we're going to talk about 
about a robot. A new study. Yeah, absolutely. A new study. It's a great study. study. It's about the fact that touching robots can arouse humans. Now, you may have known this already. I don't know. But California researchers have established that intimate caress to a humanoid robot can produce a physiological response in a human being. This is creepy. It is a little creepy. They challenged volunteers with a robotic creature less than two feet high. A little odd. It possessed eyes, ears, torso, legs, arms, and a voice. Um, that you know, what would happen? The scientists wonder if if the human beings touched the robot, and yeah. they found yeah, they found that they were sort of aroused if they told them to touch them in the in the more private areas. Very very weird. I'm the, not surprised. You know, I I you know touching what? knobs what? and dials all the time. Why do you think I'm a boredom? <laughs> this is really hot. Well, that's true. But you see, you're not a typical person. They just got folks off the street here, and so it, 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 everybody has the same has the same reaction. It, it makes you wonder what. What if they had a mannequin made of lard, you know, with, with, you know, anatomically correct? Well, you're giving me a look, T-Ray. That doesn't sound like a pleasing concept, a mannequin made of... Here, here's a, another a one. A mannequin made of lard? Yeah. What if you, you told the subject, touch the mannequin made of lard in, in, in the private areas? Would that also produce an arousal response? As well, a being made of lard, <laughs> it's not arousing. <laughs> what about this? What if you had a giant plexiglass replica model of Rosie O'Donnell's body? And and you were t- I bet that would be off-putting to most people. At least it would to me and Donald Trump too. I know Donald's with me on that. Nine thirty-one. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety. KBC. Oh, Lord. From the ridiculous to the sublime. T. Ray's headline. Call now. Call me if you're interested. What's your phone number? Eight hundred ABC K A B C. Ask for the phone number, not the phone letters. That's eight hundred two 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 five two two two. Thank you. Donald Trump's head. Donald Trump's hair Oh, so precariously perched up 9.39 at time Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre And you can now Hear the drive home on the road again Next Thursday the 14th Join Jillian and John broadcasting from Tacos and Tequila at the Morongo Casino Tacos, Tequila, Casino Jillian and John, all the makings of a wild time Plan to join them Thursday the 14th For the drive home at the Morongo Casino Good times And speaking of John Phillips uh, He joins the McIntyre in the Morning program Every Thursday morning So here you are, John, how are you? Well, just hearing that promo makes me think it's such a mistake by KBC sending two degenerates to a casino to do a broadcast. Oh, dear. It should be a good time. Well, plus the big risk the station is taking. What if you, you know, hit big, you know, some $20 million jackpot? You might not show up the next afternoon. Jillian would have to do the show alone. Yeah, it's the drive home with Leo Terrell and Jillian Barbary. Or Ned Ned Rice could come in, too. I've heard him do a great job. That's true. Yeah, th- listen, uh, you're uh, you're a busy guy, John. In addition to the Morongo Casino Casino appearance, you're going to be on with Don Lemon on CNN tonight at 7 p.m. So that sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah, in fact, I was just getting ready to tweet that I was going to appear on CNN tonight. I, I had to change it because the original tweet was, "I'm going to do Don Lemon." At no, 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 yeah, no, 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 no. Well, see, you need Donald Trump. Idea. You need Donald Trump to edit your tweets because he's really yeah. good yeah. at that. He, he's huge at that. So, so yeah, John, you don't want to start any rumors. <laughs> John Phillips, were you delighted to hear? I don't know if you heard the news that T. Ray was just reporting that Hillary Clinton has been riding the subway in New York for one stop. <laughs> 
sort of a symbolic ride, you I know, think to, so. to bond with New. I would think if I were in New Yorker, I'd be kind of ticked off. Like she thinks she can, you know, get me to like her because she rides the su- subway for one freaking stop, and I have to, to sit in this stinking car, you know, two hours a day every day. But I, I guess that's her way of reaching out to New Yorkers. Well, she's lost what seven out of the last eight. She just lost Wisconsin. She lost three in a row the prior Saturday when they voted. She is the presumptive nominee. She's the person that, that everyone expects to represent the Democrats in November. Yet she keeps losing. And it's just fantastic to me that they're, they're, they're running in her home state of New York, or I guess one of the states that she could claim is her home state, the state that she represented in the U.S. Senate for a term and a half. And Bernie just keeps inching closer and closer and closer. And he's got a chance to beat her in her home state. It's just... Everyone's talking about the Republicans because our side has been so zany this cycle. But my God, the fact that she can't win in her home state or she can't put it away right now is really shocking, isn't it? It really is remarkable. We're talking with John Phillips, of course, of The Drive Home here on KABC, 3 to 6 p.m. It is pretty strange. And plus, John, you know, she said yes, apparently, to the idea of a debate with Bernie, you know, some rumble in the Bronx or Brooklyn, wherever they're going to do it. I, you know, that's, that seemed weird to me, because I would think she'd want to sit on her lead, because as I understand it, she's still ahead in the polls. But if she does something stupid in the debate, and, you know, Bernie, you know, she may have adopted New York, but I think New Yorkers feel a kinship with Bernie. He sounds like a New Yorker, or he looks like a New Yorker. Uh, I would think that he has an opportunity to, uh, to really make some inroads uh, at the debate. Well, she's got to run a risk-averse campaign from here on out, because the map just doesn't work out in Bernie's favor. She is going to end the process with more delegates than Bernie, even if Bernie wins every single state that hasn't voted yet. The problem is, on the Democratic side, there are so many super delegates that aren't bound to vote one way or the other, that if she starts looking vulnerable or this FBI investigation into the email she's supposed to meet with James Comey, if that starts going south, you could see these super delegates switch their allegiance at the convention. So that's really the strategy at this point. Just get close enough to be within striking distance so you can convince enough superdelegates to change their mind at the 11th hour at the convention in Philadelphia. And that's Bernie's path to the nomination. But at this point, that's his only path. Do you think she would consider picking him as her VP, assuming she wins? Why not? I mean, can you think of the the chunks of the Democrat electorate that would be happy at that point? At least, you know, at least he's on there as the number two guy. No, the Democratic Party has become the minority advocate party. So she's got to drive up minority turnout to the same degree that they turned out in 2008 and 2012 if she won to win, because she's going to lose the white vote mass. She's losing the white vote in the primary, by the way by huge numbers. I mean, that's why she loses in places like Idaho and Alaska. So she needs to have either a Latino or a black person on the ticket to energize minorities, because if she doesn't energize minorities, she's going to lose. What about, let's whip out your crystal ball. You're at Cleveland. Trump doesn't get 1237. You see the establishment pulling some kind of shenanigans so that they don't like Trump or Cruz, and they wind up with Rubio or Paul Ryan or Kasich. Do you think that happens? And if it does, you think Trump isn't, his head isn't going to explode and prevent the Republicans from winning in November? I think one of two things is going to happen. Trump wins on the first ballot or someone other than Trump and Cruz wins on the fourth ballot. And it's probably going to be someone like Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney or someone the establishment is happy with. 
and they certainly don't like Donald Trump. They'll do anything and everything that it takes short of killing him to stop <laughs> Donald Trump from being the nominee. No, I'm serious. These people are gangsters. And, and, and there is no length to which they're unwilling to go to prevent him from being the nominee. There's no love for Ted Cruz. But they don't hate him the same way that they hate Donald Trump. Um, they're not going to get in bed with Ted Cruz. They're not going to make sure that Cruz wins on the first ballot because they don't have to. They can just prevent anyone from winning on the first ballot and then run with someone that they can all live with on the fourth ballot and, uh, and, and, and keep, keep all of the toys at the RNC in their hands. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, John Phillips, The Drive Home here on KBC. Appreciate you checking in with us this morning. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. 946 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal in for Doug and Bill Thomas with Traffic Bill. It's not in your face. on the time talk radio 790k abc oral oaks in for doug mcintyre i'll be back tomorrow as well so t ray i don't know about you i was glued to the set for the oj movie i did not I, see it i got my popcorn <laughs> and i got my comfortable chair what a ride those actors were so wonderful do they put it up now so that you can um watch the whole thing yes. Binge, yes, yeah, when it's, it, since it's done it's interesting unlike you know house of cards netflix says okay we're dropping it uh, you know tomorrow midnight friday and people binge watch and then mm-hmm. it's gone it seems kind of unsatisfying to me here you had to watch every tuesday now you could watch the already aired ones but you couldn't binge watch everything so Got it. uh and then the last episode tuesday was an especially long one it was like an hour 20 or something and but it was great i mean courtney vance was marvelous as johnny cochran mm-hmm. he just captured the guy so charismatic Marsha Clark, uh, Sarah Paulson was did an amazing, and it was great because they gave you so much inside stuff that people didn't see. I mean, we didn't see what it was like to be in that hotel, the Gray right. Bar Hotel. It was a fancy hotel right downtown L.A. I think it was the Intercontinental, and they took them on field trips every once in a while. They had them, you know, go to a comedy store type place, but they had to sanitize everything and keep all the O.J. stuff out. But they just got on each other's nerves to the point where the, the most fascinating thing to me was we knew that. The, the deliberations were so brief. But, I mean, right off the bat, somebody said, let's take a vote. Uh, let's straw poll, you know. Oh. And, and they did, and it was 10 to 2 not guilty. And then the rest of the deliberations, such as they were for an hour or two, were basically 10 people beating up, beating on, up the on the two, the two not died. engaging in, in a, a nice, relaxed thing. I mean, they had sat through eight months of a trial with hundreds of witnesses and literally thousands of exhibits, mm-hmm. the most famous person ever in the history of the world to be charged with murder, and they can't take a day or three or five to, really to make sure it? they get it right? It, really, a real shame. But, but you know... The, this movie put both sides' positions out there very well. It was a highlights reel of the strengths of both sides. The, the mountain of evidence of his guilt, on the, uh, on the other hand, the suspicious evidence of racism and cover-up and mishandling of the blood. So I thought it was great, and, and it sounds like it's inspired a lot of uh, uh, other stations and networks to think about OJ-related projects. We had Jim Murray on earlier. He was talking about the, the various projects that, that are in the works now. It just never ends. It just, it just never... My, my dad had just retired when the trial started. 
started. He watched that from day one, never missed an episode. And then when they came out to visit, I had to take him all over Brentwood to the various sites. Of- well, it just took uh, obsession to a whole new level here. I mean, you remember a lot of stations, they just flipped their formats completely. Mm-hmm. Like one of the all-news radio stations, it was all OJ all day long. A bunch of, of TV stations instead of the guiding light, you know, soap operas. And the ratings zoomed through the roof because people just couldn't get enough of it. So it's uh, it, it was a fun ride, uh, and uh, just since you didn't see it, uh, he was found not guilty. Oh, uh, yeah. thank you for that. So uh, that was kind of a spoiler alert. Uh, Thanks nine, a lot, Royal. <laughs> 9.54 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, The Place. Peter Tilden is going to be here shortly. We're going to get a little preview of what's on Peter's docket, so stay tuned.